Hi everyone, Anastasia here. Welcome to this bonus episode of Left Behind, featuring my conversation with John Aiken of BatonMissing.com. I have a bit of a cold today, so my voice sounds a bit off, I know. Before we jump in, just a quick heads up that this conversation gets pretty detailed and into the weeds of the Nininger and Cheney identification efforts. So I would suggest that if you haven't yet listened to episode 17, that you do so before listening here. This conversation will make much more sense if you do. And with that, let's get into that conversation. Welcome to the Left Behind podcast, John. I am so excited to have you with us today. Oh, I'm excited to be with you. So I have John Aiken here, and he runs a website called batonmissing.com, where he collects and tells stories of servicemen who died on Bataan or in one of the Philippine prison camps and uh, shares information about their identification and burial. So, John, do you want to take a minute and introduce yourself? Well, not much to tell. I've been an amateur genealogist for, I guess, 30-plus years. I started back in the microfilm days. You know, it's too easy today with everything online. (laughs) Uh, But in, in about 2009... I was looking for a project, and it was almost Veterans Day, and I thought, well, you know, let's let's see if we can find a, a project with a military connection, because in my family, my dad and my uncles and, you know, everyone in, in, in town served in the military during World War II, and there was only one member of my family that, that didn't come back, and that was Bud Kelder, and I, I really didn't know much about Bud or about his life, and I thought it, it, it would be the, the uh, logical uh, subject, of, you know, for, for my research. The only thing that I knew about him was that when I was about 15, I accompanied my grandfather to visit his sister, my great aunt, and while I was there, I was looking at the pictures on her wall, and I asked about the little boy, and she just choked up and... and couldn't talk, and my grandfather said, that's, that's Bud. And so I, I didn't ask anymore, and when I got home, I asked my mother, you know, who's, who's Bud Kelder? And she told me the story about the Bataan Death March and how Bud had never come home, and it had always been a, a just a, a, a terrible family tragedy uh, because they didn't know what had happened to him. He just disappeared during the Bataan Death March. That's all I knew. So I started researching him. I I got his uh, individual deceased personnel file, IDPF, and it was so obvious what happened to him. He had died in in a POW camp, and uh, the military had totally botched identifying his remains, and so they just buried him as as an unknown. And that that that's where it all started for me. And, and so the military didn't tell the family more than he's missing in action or as far as you know? They, they told him that, that his, or they told the family that his remains were non-recoverable. That was their term, non-recoverable. And everyone thought, well, that meant that they didn't have any remains to return. It turned out that they did have remains to return. They just couldn't sort out exactly which were his remains. And so they buried them all as unknowns. The reason that they couldn't identify him was because they didn't have dental records. And they didn't have dental records because they didn't ask the family for dental records. They only used military dental records. But, of course, Bud, being a a young private, he'd been in less than a year, and he'd probably never had military dental work done. They didn't have any dental records. They didn't ask. So... It's easier to just bury him as an unknown. Mm, that's awful. That that was very common. And and I've I've learned that working working with you over the last few weeks as we have uh, looked at Cheney and Nininger, I'm, I'm realizing how all too common that is, and it's uh, it's heartbreaking because many of them were so young. And the families uh, knew absolutely nothing about what happened to them. They had essentially just fallen off the face of the earth just disappeared. And all that the military would say was they're non-recoverable. That that was so common 
in the in the POW camp where Bud died. It was uh, the Cabanatuan uh, POW camp in the Philippines. There were about uh, 2,655 who died and were buried in the camp, and over a thousand of them were listed as, or well, they were buried as unknowns. And then of the ones who were supposedly identified, they botched most of those identifications. And so the families that did get remains probably didn't get the right remains. It's sickening. I don't even have the words. I, I don't either. And I, I, I can kind of understand it. I, I'm a Vietnam veteran. And, I, you know, I, I've seen the military at its best and at its worst. And sometimes, well, there's some things they do very well and some things they don't do so well. And this was a not so well. Going on that not so well, I know that you have filed uh, several lawsuits against, is it the U.S. Army? To back up, you can't file suit against the government for remains. So initially, we just filed a lawsuit in federal court asking for all the records. The IDPFs, and there's a subset of the IDPFs called the X-Files. The X-Files are IDPFs that pertain to unidentified remains. And initially, I was just asking for the X-Files. And the, the military just fought me tooth and nail for several years. And we, we not only got those, but uh, we got the dental records for Bud Kelder. Ironically, his older brother was a dentist, and the family had the uh, dental records all the time. It just the military didn't ask for them, so they didn't know. But we got the uh, X-Files, and I thought, well, you know, once we get those, because the military spent so much time telling the world how hard they're working to account for all of the missing. Well, that, that's not true. It's, it's a propaganda thing uh, with them. If they worked as hard at identifying unidentified remains as they work at telling the world what a great job they're doing, we wouldn't have any missing. Anyhow, I got the, the X-Files, and that really upset things when, when they were forced to put the X-Files into the public domain. And what, what year was this? That was 2010 when we filed the first lawsuit. And then what did, how long until you got access? Oh, that, that took a couple of years. And I, I figured, well, you know, once, once the files are in the public domain, well, the Department of Defense will, you know, jump at the chance to identify as many of these men as they can. Uh, by this time, I had given them the, uh, the dental records and everything, and they didn't want to talk to me. Uh, in, in fact, at, at a, a, a family briefing meeting that I attended, I tried to give them the records, and they wouldn't take them. They, they looked at me like I was from Mars. You want to do what? You want to identify an unknown? It, this had never been done before. Yet, you know, they were telling the world that they were actively trying to account for all of these missing men. So, you know, uh, all this time I'm, I'm learning that things weren't exactly as they appeared. The military really wasn't interested in identifying these men. They just wanted to keep a lid on what I think is a national scandal. So in about uh, 2012 or 13, I filed another federal lawsuit and asked the court to order them to uh, produce the remains so that we could test them. And ultimately, after we got through all of the preliminary objections to the lawsuit, the court did order them to produce the remains, and they had 30 days to produce them. Within two weeks, they had disinterred the remains from the American cemetery in Manila and moved them to Hawaii and tried to get the lawsuit dismissed. No way were they going to uh, give us access to these remains. It took them about six months to identify the remains. Anyhow, uh, within uh, about six months, early 2015, uh, the remains of Bud Kelder and, and several of the other 
unknowns who were buried in the same communal grave were identified and returned to the families. And uh, the problem was that they only returned a few token bones. They don't have sufficient DNA laboratory capacity, nor the laboratory capability to properly identify all the remains. So they just give the family a few token bones and, and tell them that's, that's all they get. And sorry about that. That's just so, I hate that idea. A few, it, it's a well, disturbing what, what, idea. What's so sad about it is, is the technology exists that they could do it, but they intentionally use the wrong kind of DNA without getting too technical about it. There's different kinds of, of DNA identification. They use mitochondrial or MT DNA. Mitochondrial DNA, just in general, is slow. It's time-consuming to do the testing. It's expensive to do the testing. And most importantly, mitochondrial DNA is not unique to an individual. Uh, in some ethnic groups, uh, you might find as much as 7% of the population that share the same mitochondrial DNA. So when, when they do a mitochondrial DNA identification, they first have to do a conventional identification based on location and dental work and, you know, whatever evidence they have. And they also have to have all of the associated uh, individuals' DNA so that they can be sure that that they don't share the same mitochondrial DNA. And only then can they use mitochondrial as, as an identifier. By comparison, using nuclear or autosomal DNA, it's comparatively inexpensive and it's quick. We've gotten DNA identifications using nuke within five days. And it's unique to an individual and there are abbreviated identification uh, processes that are even less expensive and quicker that can be used to properly reassociate a set of remains. But they refuse, DOD refuses to use uh, a nuclear or autosomal DNA just because that opens a whole Pandora's box of, of new problems for them. So as someone who has been in the DNA genealogy world since the dark ages, and so we're talking like 2010, <laughs> the dark ages of, of <laughs> using DNA for uh, genealogy research, I understand the uses of mtDNA. And just as a, a, a quick, just a, a really quick for our listeners, so mtDNA is mitochondrial DNA, and that is DNA that a person gets only from their mother. So for example, I got my mt, well, all of us, we got our mtDNA from ours, our mothers. And so for me, my siblings and I all have the same mtDNA, as does our mother and her siblings, which means that her, her, sisters passed the same DNA to their daughter, to their children. And I have passed that DNA to my daughters and there, and, and so like all the women are passing on this DNA and it doesn't change very much. And so if you go back in time and think about it's being passed from woman to woman, to woman, to woman, and, and then, and of course men have it too, but they don't pass it along. There is a lot of people with the same mtDNA. Um, an autosomal DNA or nuclear DNA, you're looking at that that specific mixture that makes you you. Um, so a follow-up question then, why do they always use mtDNA? Why aren't they shifting into the 2020s or, you know, into the 2015s? Or actually, genealogy companies started doing these autosomal tests like around 2012. So why... Why are we like at least eleven years later, and we're not, um, and, and we're not doing that for identification? Do you know? Sure, autosomal is is the gold standard around the world, and of all of the major agencies that do DNA identifications, uh, DOD is the only one that relies almost exclusively 
on the use of mitochondrial. That makes me so angry. I'm sorry. And I can back up even, even further. In 1995, the Defense Science Board did a report on the use of, of DNA for identification of, of unidentified remains. So in 1995, if, if I can paraphrase this huge 300-page report, they basically said that mitochondrial, which was state-of-the-art at the time, mitochondrial was acceptable for use for identification. However, when and if the technology to use nuclear or autosomal DNA was developed, it was so superior to the use of mitochondrial that nuke should be used, okay? Well, the technology to use nuke was developed in the early 2000s. In fact, it was developed primarily in Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina, uh, where you, you might remember they had a little uh, genocide problem. Yeah. And often there, were, there, there might be uh, a grandfather, father, and son all buried in the same grave. And, of course, they uh, were, were likely to share the same uh, mitochondrial DNA, so obviously they couldn't use mitochondrial DNA there. Uh, so they had to develop the use of nuke, and within a year, they were identifying more than 10,000 sets of remains using nuclear DNA. And from that point on, around the world, nuke has been the gold standard for identification. Now, you can't always use it. Sometimes you don't have uh, uh, family reference samples to compare it to. Sometimes if the uh, remains have been degraded, you can't extract uh, a nuke. But in general, in 90 plus percent of the cases, nuke is superior, and that's that's the way to go. But now to answer your question, when they start doing this, it opens the door to looking at all of the bad identifications that were done. And it's not just people are going to find out that uh, that their missing family member could have been identified uh, if DOD had tried, but they're going to find out that many of the remains that were supposedly identified were identified erroneously. So it's just going to open a can of worms. Yeah, and, and DOD was having to, to, to go to some of the families that had buried their their uh, loved one in a, in a private cemetery. They're having to go to them and say, oops, we made a mistake. Could we have those bones back? And that that's rather embarrassing for the military. They didn't, didn't like doing that. So they have done everything that they could to prevent the, the use of mitochondrial and to... Uh, identify any more unknowns than they had to. Now, now Bud Kelder was the first unknown who was identified in, in modern times, and we, we've we've had to. Well, originally they they didn't have any standard for disinterment of uh, of unidentified remains. Uh, they had what they called the Slocum Memo. And an an assistant secretary of defense had issued this memorandum saying that if it if it, if it was likely that they could be identified, then they should be uh, disinterred and examined and, and and tested. But after the first success with Bud Kelder, they tightened those regulations and they continue to tighten those regulations every time we uh, advance the process just a little bit. They revised the regulation. And I, I think we're up to about the fifth or sixth uh, revision to their regulations on the standards that have to be met. For instance, now, if you go to the Department of Defense and say, I think that we can identify uh, X123 as my missing family member, they say, okay, but you have to also obtain DNA from 60% at least 60% of the associated uh, remains. In other words, if there were 10 men that died in a POW camp one day and they were all buried in one communal grave, you have to find my, uh, a family reference sample for at least six of those 10. 
before we'll even consider your case. And then it takes years before they do the disinterment. And then after they disinter the remains, because remember what I said about uh, inadequate laboratory capacity and inadequate laboratory capability? Yeah. We we know of, of cases that have been sitting in the lab for more than five years without being identified. They just don't put any priority to it. So they're, they're doing everything that they can to discourage families from pursuing uh, these cases because as, as we get further and further away from these guys, you know, I, I never met Bud Kelder. I, I wasn't born until after the war. And a lot of people really don't care about these, I hate to call them ancient ancestors, but uh, there's just less and less interest in identifying them as as, pe- as as time goes on. And the military knows this. If they can keep a lid on this scandal for a few more years, no one's going to care. Uh, well, and that just, well, that brings up a whole other thing that we'll try to get into a little bit later on in our conversation. So it seems like it's almost institutional embarrassment on in the Department of Defense or Army or whoever it is. Because like, I think like, from my perspective, we're talking about identifications that were first made going on 80 years ago. Um, and I'm like, why are we still embarrassed about that? But it seems like it's institutional embarrassment, almost the we can't admit to any mistakes no matter when they were made. Is, is that somewhat accurate, do you think? That's exactly uh, the problem. Uh, you know, it, it's very doable. And I, I don't think that we can blame the people that made bad identifications almost 80 years ago. They were doing the best they could at the time. Now, some of them just flat out screwed up. There were a lot of mistakes made. But, I, you know, having, having been a young GI and, and uh, having been assigned to do jobs that I wasn't necessarily trained to do, I can understand how the military works. But today we have the technology, and they refuse to use the modern technology just because they wish to avoid embarrassment. Wow. Um, that's just, it's hard for me to understand, I'll be, to understand, to be very honest. <laughs> I think the, the best that I've heard, heard the, the military explain it is that when they identify someone who died during a current conflict, the only thing that they have to rely on is their credibility. They have to be able to go to uh, the mother of, of, of some young man or young woman and say, we've identified these remains as those of your loved one. And without that credibility, they can't do that. Personally, I, I think that they would be much more credible if they did the best they could in all cases. But they don't see it that way. And so all of these World War II cases that they screwed up, they just want to bury. Yeah. Pardon the pun. <laughs> I want to circle back to um, something that you brought up a little bit ago. So mitochondrial DNA is like we've said, it takes a long time to disintegrate and break down. And so with ancient remains, um, a lot of times the only DNA that can be pulled out of those remains are mitochondrial. So uh, some more high-level examples is like Marie Antoinette. They were able to get mtDNA from a lock of her hair, if I'm remembering correctly. Or if they find like caveman remains, it's mtDNA that they're able to pull out of those remains. So considering that a lot of these men, we're looking at, uh, you know, 80-plus years ago, is there nuclear slash autosomal DNA that can be gotten out of these bones or is mtDNA the only DNA that is able to be pulled from these remains? That was DOD's excuse for years that nuke DNA could not be extracted from what they considered to be aged remains. But I, I think we, we, we put the, the lie to that uh, claim a few years ago we sent one of Bud Kelder's bones that they returned to us. We sent it to a commercial DNA lab and let them sample it. And they had 
no problem whatsoever extracting nuke. And in fact, they were not not only able to extract nuke DNA from this supposedly aged remains that uh, nuke couldn't be extracted from, they were able to use it to uh, perform a, a blind genetic genealogy study and identify the source of of those uh, remains. Amazing. Amazing that they were able to do that. Awful that it can't be done on the higher level. Let's let's turn our attention to uh, Lieutenant Ira Cheney. Um, so uh, just as a quick recap, Lieutenant Cheney died on January 30th, 1942 in, in battle on Bataan. He was identified about a week later by his captain, and the graves registration officer told that captain that his remains were being taken to a cemetery near Marvellis, which is on Bataan Peninsula. Unfortunately, he didn't specify which cemetery. There's two in Marvellis, and at least 10 between where Cheney died and Maravellis. Um, so we don't know where he was buried. And if you listen to episode the episode about Cheney, we go into I go into a lot of the details on um, identifying his body and things like that. But long story short, remains were incorrectly buried at West Point under Cheney's name, and it turns out they aren't Cheney's remains. So I do have a couple questions on that. Where does the investigation into Cheney now now stand? As my un- it's my understanding that a few years ago the remains at West Point were disinterred and discovered to be that of a Filipino. Um, and so are those remains still there at West Point under Cheney's name, or do we know what's going on with his identification? I, I have no way of knowing what DOD is doing at, at this point. Uh, I, I can only tell you that uh, when the classified annex to the uh, Cheney file was released, it didn't take them long uh, like only a few weeks after we publicized this information before they disinterred the grave at West Point and they determined that the remains that were buried at West Point were non-Caucasian. That's all they've told us. Essentially, they're, they're uh, telling us that uh, they were probably Filipino. Okay. Now, the whole thing, I, I think they knew all along that those were were not Cheney's remains. Since at uh, least 1950, the, right? Like, at least. <laughs> yeah, at, at least 1950. And the investigation that they conducted, the right <laughs> or, or the intensive uh, uh, investigation determined that uh, they were either the remains of Ninninger or one of the other uh, young officers that died in, in that same uh, uh, time frame. What had happened is Ninninger's commanding officer, Colonel Clark, was relieved of his command about the same time as Ninninger was was killed. Now, there, there's some dispute over exactly what day he left Bataan, but the best accounts are that uh, he wasn't even present on Bataan when Ninninger was killed. He went back to the States. He avoided the uh, death march and, and the prison camps and went back to the States after being relieved of his command and probably in an effort to rehabilitate his reputation, he went around to the the families of several of the young officers that uh, uh, died under his command and told them supposedly the facts of their deaths and the stories that he told whether they were true or not, they were a little self-serving. <laughs> and the families took the information that they got from Colonel Clark, and they went to their uh, congressional representatives, 
one of whom was actually Richard Nixon, who was very prominent at, at the time. And these congressional representatives went to the Department of Defense and demanded that uh, these remains be returned to the family. So in Cheney's case, the Department of Defense went to the town of Abakay on Bataan, where Nininger had died, but not where Nin- not where Cheney had died. They went to Abakay, they got a set of unidentified remains and said, this is Ira Cheney, and they shipped those remains to the States with you know, no examination, no evidence uh, as to who they actually were, but they shipped those remains to West Point and had them buried there. You know, they, they, they weren't even trying. They just said, okay, let, let's get these people off our backs. Let's, let's give them some remains and call it good. And, and I hate to say this, but it almost, I think it might not be far off from the truth. Cheney wasn't as important as Nininger when it came to identification. And that's so sad. Yes, it is. It is sad. But you have to understand that this was just over a month after Pearl Harbor. And the national morale was pretty low. And the American military had suffered a number of defeats. We lost all of these uh, troops on Bataan. The Pacific fleet had been sunk at uh, Pearl Harbor. And things, things were looking pretty dark, and America needed a hero. And Alexander Nininger became that hero. And so, not, not to take anything away from his, his actual hero, heroism, but he was, I, I don't know how to put it, he became an even bigger hero yeah. than most Medal of Honor winners or recipients, uh, just because... You know, they, they needed to uh, uh, boost the, the national morale. Yeah. He was so the hero he the country a, needed. A, yeah, he, he, he was a double hero, put it that way. You know, before we, we jump full feet first into Nininger, because I know that there's so much there, um, just I'm, I'm curious to know if you have any thought on this. Do you have a personal belief of where Cheney's remains are located today? Most likely, he was buried near where he fell, but exactly where, uh, we, we don't know. Uh, more than likely, uh, because he was an officer in the Philippine Scouts, so most of the troops that died at the same time as, as he did were Filipinos, and it's, it, it's not unlikely that his remains were given to the uh, Philippine government who had their own cemetery, and uh, it's not unlikely that he's buried there. Wow. So, I mean, am I wrong in thinking that the options for for Taney are that he could still be on Bataan somewhere and just really non-recoverable? He could be in in a grave at Manila American Cemetery marked unknown, or he could be in a... A Filipino World War II cemetery. Is that what you're saying? His remains could still be buried where, where he fell. There's there's just no way to know. The only way that we'll ever know is if the Department of, of Defense implements the outreach plan that was outlined in the 1995 Defense Science Board study. And by the way, that Defense Science Board study still is used as DOD's scientific authority for identification of unidentified remains. So it, it's, it's still a valid study, and it recommended at the time that when and if nuclear DNA technology was developed to the point that it was usable, and it has been, then basically, this is a, a great oversimplification, they should sample... DNA from all unidentified remains and compare it against a database of family reference samples. Or now the technology exists that they could do genetic genealogy if no family reference sample exists. Yeah. Amen. Like, I love that idea. Let's do that right now. And, 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 and then they could resolve all of the uh, unknowns. And there's, there's another rather morbid story 
about generally the remains that were buried as unknowns were, let's say, anatomically complete. Most of the bones were, were there. If there was only a couple of bones that uh, were recovered, maybe, you know, wild animals had scattered the bones or whatever and only a couple were recovered. And after the war, all of these odd bits, odd bones, were packed into a single casket and buried as a single unknown. You know, each of the major overseas cemeteries buried, in some cases, several dozen of these uh, caskets full of odd bones, and they may account for another 5,000 uh, MIAs. Oh, my gosh. Cheney could be there, or he could be buried as an unknown, or he could still be out there, or he could have been buried as, as a Filipino. There, there's just any number of possibilities, and DOD is not working very effectively to resolve any of these possibilities. So, um, quick side question. When, were they buried with their dog tags? Should they have been buried well, with their dog tags? I guess maybe it's a better if, question. If, if, if dog tags were available, uh, you know, if, if they had dog tags, they were probably identified. However, the story goes, whether it's true or not, but the story goes that in, in the POW camps, oftentimes when, when a man knew that he was going to die, you know, it was a pretty slow process because yeah. a lot of these guys were essentially starved to death. Yeah. They died of various uh, uh, dysentery diseases due to mal mal malnutrition, yeah, and dysentery and like that. And they knew they were going to die, and they uh, were said to often give their dog tags to their buddy and say, you know, uh, make sure that uh, you contact my family. And then when, when the buddy would die, and he'd have somebody else's dog tags. So the identifications in, in the POW camps, in general, uh, required two bits of identification. Uh, perhaps it was dog tags and the burial roster or something else, maybe uh, uh, dental work or whatever, but they, they would require uh, two bits of identification. And if, if they didn't uh, agree... And they were an unknown. Okay. How sad that you think you're going to die and the only thing, only piece of you that can go home is your dog tags. I, I can't even really put myself there. So let's turn to Nininger. Why do you think the Army slash Department of Defense is so insistent that his remains are located in the Abukate Churchyard Cemetery? Um, because... Those documents in his IDPF and the X-Files and things that I've read, it seems pretty obvious to me that he's most likely in the Abukate Town Cemetery. So why the insistence on the churchyard cemetery and why are we holding so, so tightly to Colonel Clark's story? I, I think it just illustrates how incomplete the military's research is. You know, they're, they're researchers. Uh, well, to me, they're, they're pretty much a joke. I've, I've seen their researchers uh, do sworn statements contradicted each other, either because they're not aware of the facts or they're trying to please their bosses or maybe they just didn't have all of the uh, uh, research material. Uh, so, you know, in, in their defense... If you take Cheney's IDPF and look only at that, you'll be convinced that uh, his remains were buried in the Abacay churchyard. But when, when you get the Cheney file and the uh, declassified uh, annex to the Cheney file, which actually it was a declassified annex to the Ninninger file as well, but it was filed under Ninninger because you know they didn't make a lot of copies. Uh, just on, 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 on the surface, you know, you'll, you'll be convinced that he's uh, buried in, in the churchyard rather than the town cemetery. I, I think the best evidence as to where he's buried is that the local command, I never saw this in any of the other files, but the local command made three recommendations 
at the grave in the town cemetery where the remains designated as X-1130 were buried, they made three recommendations that those were Leninger. Okay, I've never seen any file that contained a recommendation, more than one recommendation for anyone. But in this case, there were three recommendations by the local command that X-1130 was Leninger. And three times, Washington disapproved the recommendation. The first time they disapproved the recommendation because there, there was a discrepancy in the estimated height of the remains. Now, we, we know today that the way that they estimated the height of remains back then, you know, based on the measurement of, of long bones, and then they could extrapolate that to the entire set of remains, the system that they were using was very, very, very flawed, and it underestimated the height. And because there was a discrepancy in the height, Washington turned down the recommendation that X-1130 was, was Minimjur. By the next time, you know, they sent the file back to the uh, local command. The local command again recommended X-1130 be identified as Minimjur. By this time, Colonel Clark's story had made its way through Congress to the Pentagon, and someone in, in the Pentagon uh, uh, decided that uh, this was too hot of a case for them. They didn't want to touch it, so they just sent it back to uh, the local command and said, no, we're, we're not going to accept your, your recommendation. The local command a third time sent it forward, you know, recommended that uh, these remains be accepted as, as Ninninger. Washington turned them down a third time. So finally, the local command said, well, to heck with it, and uh, gave up, you know, three times. And that's the only case I've ever seen where there was more than one recommendation for identification. That's so they were pretty convinced that X-1130 was Ninninger. If, if X-1130 wasn't Ninninger, there were four other sets of unidentified remains there. And, uh, you know, they should have examined those, but they didn't. They refused. Uh, yeah, that is a mess. So Colonel Clark, when he, in 1950, when he was being interviewed by, I believe his name was Captain Vogel with the Memorial Division, when Vogel said, well, basically we've dug up the entire Abuquet churchyard and Ninninger has not been found. And Colonel Clark suggested, well, perhaps the Japanese dug up Ninninger's remains and moved them or destroyed them because they were upset with him for killing Japanese soldiers. What is your take on that theory? I've heard several people say similar things that uh, the Japanese uh, destroyed uh, uh, graves and uh, things like that. I've never seen any documented evidence that it actually happened. You know, there's there, there was no reason for it. You know, who wants to go around digging up graves? You know, they're they're they're, they're generally rather unpleasant. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So maybe, maybe knock down a, a marker or something, but uh, not digging up uh, graves. Nobody wants. Yeah, it's it's a very unpleasant smell, if nothing else. Yeah. And and so you have seen no documentation or evidence that that shows or suggests that Japanese were going around digging up graves. No, none whatsoever. Okay, let's turn to Ninninger's the DNA testing. The are the DoD finally agreed to do DNA testing on those unknown X one one three zero remains which had been reinterred at Manila American Cemetery. And so they did DNA testing to see if it was a match for Ninninger. And they wrote an email back to John Patterson saying there was no match. Is there any other documentation that has been received that you know of? That's all that I'm aware of. Okay. And do you know what kind of DNA testing? Are we, is it mtDNA testing that they did? Do you know? I, I don't, I don't know any of the details. Uh, 
mitochondria would have been consistent with what they usually did, but who knows? Okay. Um, and so now here's the million dollar question and I don't, maybe you don't want to speculate. Do you believe those DNA findings re X one, one, three, zero is not being Ninninger. Do you believe it? My experience in dealing with, uh, the Department of, of Defense on, on this issue. And that includes, what, uh, 12 years in uh, federal court litigating against them. They don't have a lot of credibility in my book. In, in this case, their uh, DNA testing may have been all above board, may have been accurate, but I've, I've seen so many discrepancies in the, in the, well, just in the sworn statements that they have, uh, given to the court. They've, they've contradicted themselves. Plus, they've contradicted uh, uh, things that I knew to be factual. And they've gone out of their way to do everything that they could to avoid especially uh, identifying Ninninger. So they don't have much credibility, but who knows? Okay. Doesn't do any good to speculate. Well, and, and just as a follow-up, where do you think Ninninger's remains are? Well, there, there's a number of places that he could be buried today. Uh, we'll, we'll never know in, until they come up with, a, with an effective uh, identification process, preferably a DNA-led identification process that resolves all of the MIA cases from that area. Kind of switching gears a little bit then, why does it matter if we identify these men or not? We we touched on this a little bit earlier. They have been deceased for 80 years and their most immediate family, their parents, and likely many, if not all of their siblings have passed. Um, and you, you've even mentioned that living family members often don't care about identifying these soldiers' remains. So why is this important? Why continue this fight to identify them? I think there's any, any number of reasons. I, I remember as, as a, a young boy going to the local cemetery with my grandmother to decorate graves and uh, basically to, to honor our, our ancestors. I, I think that's reason enough in, in itself. Uh, perhaps on a more practical level, uh, what does it tell some young trooper that's just enlisted in, in the army? What does it tell him? You know, we've, we've we've asked this guy to write a blank check for everything up to his hide, and we're. We're, we're not honoring the blank check. You know, let me back up. When someone enlists in the Army, they, they figure that at the very least, their remains are going to be returned to their family for burial. That's, that's the way all of the uh, casualties from Afghanistan uh, and the Middle East and, you know, even, even uh, Korea uh, military goes to great lengths to return their remains. And yet, if some young trooper sees how they have handled these World War II uh, unidentified remains, there's no reason that he's going to think that uh, his remains are going to be returned to his mother for burial. And let me tell you, uh, you know, as, as a Vietnam veteran, I don't know how many times I, I heard other guys, and I certainly felt this way, if, if we died, you know, that, that wasn't a big deal. We were young, stupid, and bulletproof. <laughs> but don't bury me in this, in this uh, uh, red dirt over here. We all wanted to go home, one way or another. To us, Vietnam was the worst place that, that we could be. And... We didn't want to be there for all eternity. So I don't know. Uh, I don't think that it, it's a simple question, but I, I think that most GIs feel that way. Everyone deserves, if nothing else, they deserve to have 
their own name on their headstone, not just here lies in honor, glory, a comrade known, comrade known, but but to God. That's not adequate. If if a guy wants to be buried overseas, that's fine, but at least give him his name back. Amen. That was really powerful, John. I'm a little teared up, to be honest. Well, I, I don't often think very much that's uh, profound, but it's something I feel strongly about. No, I, I do too. Is there anything else that you want to share with us? Oh, I, <laughs> I, I think you've... you've uh, uh, found that uh, you can't shut me up when, once you get me talking. Uh, this this is something that's near and dear to my heart uh, because I've, I believe these guys deserve better than what, what they've got from our government. If anyone has any any questions, if, if anyone has a missing family member and they're looking for information, I'll be glad to share anything that I have on them. I have a lot of, of data that I've accumulated about all these guys and I can be contacted through the uh, batanmissing.com website. That's B-A-T-A-A-N missing.com. Contact me uh, through that, and I'll be glad to share anything that I have with any of the family members. Thank you. And and let me just add in, I, I have spent a lot of time on the batanmissing.com website in the last couple of weeks as I've been doing this research, and there is a... There's a lot of information, and Nininger and Cheney, uh, who we've mostly focused off on here, they're just the tip. There are there's so many, and um, and they deserve they deserve better than than this. They don't deserve to be left behind like they have. They all deserve better. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, it has been a privilege to work with you and speak with you on this topic. And I, I just hope that we can get this message out to other people um, who are interested in this topic and who feel like joining the, the fight to identify these brave men. Well, thank you so much for, for taking on this effort and, and helping to get the word out. Well, there you have it. A lot more details about Nininger and Cheney and the baton missing. If you want to get even more details, I do encourage you to visit batonmissing.com where you can view the files that we've been talking about. Those documents are what lay out this entire story. Thanks for taking the time to listen, and I hope you have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend.